Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. Our 21st episode. 21. 21. We're legal now. And we're the podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yes. And you obviously would listen to if you had nothing better right. to do. Or listen to. Or wouldn't listen to if you had nothing. So, Wait. Uh, whatever. I get mixed up. I know. Uh, before, before our topic. Yes. Do you have... I have an update on um, something. something. Remember how in episode 8... The Maura Murray episode, I went on this tangent about the supposed serial killer of drunken young men yes. walking out in the water. Yes. So in March, another drunken young man the disappeared in Boston. The serial killer again. Yeah, he disappeared. He was at TD Garden North, whatever they call it. I just call it Boston Garden, like we Who, said. the victim? The victim was. What's his name? His name is Michael Kelleher of South Borough, Massachusetts. He was 23. Aw. He was at a Bruins game, I think. It could have been a Celtics game. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a Celtics game. And he was there. I'm not sure who he was with because the stories, because he's a young man instead of a young woman, are not as interest, you know, as full of detail as they should be. But he was supposed to meet a friend and never met the friend after the game. It was on March 29th. His family said he had gotten drunk during the game. I'm mm-hmm. not sure how they knew that, but... I think a twenty-three-year-old young man at a Celtics game is probably going to get drunk yeah. in Boston. He was found this morning in the Charles River in Boston, mm-hmm. and today is April sixteenth. So yeah. he was missing for a few weeks. We had talked in that episode about this whole theory that there's a serial killer killing young <laughs> men throwing and young throwing drunk them in the water. But and painting happy to faces. everyone's credit, this story doesn't bring that up. Thank God. It says, at this time, both detectives and crime scene service troopers are investigating. The medical examiner's office is working to determine the exact cause and manner of death, but neither the family nor police suspect foul play, but rather that Kelleher fell into the river. Because, I mean, because the, people do. it's close to the water, and yes. And they're wandering around drunk, and it's cold out. And, and dark, and you might not even see what you're doing. So, and once you're in that water, forget it. So that's our news update. Okay, and um, I just thought something interesting that's happening, it happened in Maine this past it, week or so. It was actually a historic... It is. A we'll have thing. to talk we'll to Matt. We'll have Matt talk about it if he if ever he comes have, back. I don't know. Oh. Maybe he's mad at us or something. Oh, I think it's. But just so good. this, so this guy, what was his name? Andy Sanborn. Thank you, Andy Sanborn. He was arrested at 25, 27 years ago. I'm glad somebody in knows something. In 1990, when he, he was 16, he was arrested for killing his this a friend. Yeah, an they called her his girlfriend, but he was like a short term. They, he was. They were in the same group of people. They were homeless teens that hung out on the streets. He was arrested for killing her. His conviction was not overturned. He's been in jail for 25 years. Um, he was he was sentenced to right? life. He was well. He was convicted 25 years ago. He was arrested 27. Uh, it says. Yeah. Okay. He was sentenced to life in prison, and he got a bail hearing, and he was given bail. I think it was $200,000. And they said it's the first time first time ever that, that I, someone found guilty in Maine and convicted of murder has been... Oh, he got a 70-year sentence. It has been let out. Yes. The first time ever that, that someone has been given bail who has been convicted of murder... I mean, the bail is just a, a side thing to it. I know, but no, because usually when you're convicted, you're in jail. And right, you're... <laughs> because you're not let out of jail, so you're not going to have bail. It's the fact that he's been let out, not the fact that he's right. been given bail. I mean, they could have not given him bail and let oh, him out. Oh, that's true, too. Okay. But his, they had no evidence at all. They found her 
stabbed body in the water. On the, it was on the main state pier, or her stuff was on the pier. I don't know if her body was found. They found her body in the water, mm, yeah. stabbed and mutilated, and a blood on the pier, but no evidence against him whatsoever. And some of her stuff was on the pier, pier her shoes or her something. Her glasses and her shoes and I think her purse. The only evidence they had was an eyewitness testimony of a girl that knew them, who was 13 at the time, and the defense did not know this at the time, but she was legally blind. And it was nighttime. And she also later recanted and said she wasn't even in the area. Right. But what happened is she had 2200 vision and couldn't possibly that time of night have seen what she said she saw. And the prosecution never told the defense that she couldn't see well. And it should have been part of so the discovery. So it's a long involved story. We're gonna, we, maybe we'll do an episode and, and on it. I think we should do an episode on it. Because it's very interesting. But she recanted. And um, said that at the time, and she was 13, said that the police kind of coerced her and told her what to say, which is totally believable. And both she of was, them are retired now and say they never did, but she was 13. Right. She was 13. Her social worker, who was her considered her legal guardian at the time because she was a ward of the state, said the police never talked to her or had her sit with the girl while they were questioning her. They questioned the girl Without any other and they questioned there. all their friends and um and were intimidating to all of them right and any thirteen year old is going to be intimidated no matter what the police said or did and one of the prosecutors actually not one of the prosecutors one of Sanborn's lawyer somebody in the case that I read the other day said that they feel like she made up the story that she saw it happen you know to impress like her a friends. war story a yeah. war story yeah. to impress her friends yeah and it got out of hand. And so she fully recanted, and a couple other witnesses who didn't claim to see the murder but also testified to things that implicated Sanborn have also recanted. And they had no evidence against him at well, all. And he I was a 16-year-old like, kid with a mullet. Yeah, with him. Well, who didn't back then? So, yeah, we should, we should definitely so we'll do, it, do yes. it. Maybe we can talk to some local people about it. Maybe we could. I don't think the detectives would talk no, to us. No, I don't think so. And I think that they would stick by their... Yeah, story whatever. about and it's yeah. interesting that the one of the assistant attorney generals who was complicit in this whole thing pam ames oh, yeah. is now a, a lawyer in yeah. waterville defense attorney. yeah she is anyway so, so that was an interesting case that happened here in maine yeah so i think we'll probably be doing it yeah we should do a full episode maybe we could have Once matt as a guest on the episode to talk about yes, the legal if, he, if he feels comfortable talking about it yeah as well it's not his case he seems comfortable doesn't he <laughs> when he's here <laughs> talking about shit. I don't know. We haven't seen him for oh, a while. Oh, that's true. Okay, so... So are we going to do tonight's topic? Yes. And it's your turn. Yes, and today is Easter Sunday, the day we're recording. A lot of our listeners don't know that tomorrow is a holiday, too, in Maine and Massachusetts only. Patriots Day. Patriots Day. And it's not named after the football team. It celebrates the battles of Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. Unless you're what's her? <laughs> Unless you're Bachman, Michelle Bachman, who thought it was Concord, Concord New, New Hampshire. Hampshire. What a board! Yeah, New Hampshire, and nothing else. Didn't she ever have to read the poem? You know, yeah, the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. She probably. A lot of people think that all of New England is one state. Yeah, so. they do. That was the first military engagement of the Amer- or one of the first military mm-hmm. engagements of the American Revolutionary War. Did you know that? I did. Uh-huh. And that took place on April nineteenth, seventeen seventy-five. And you know what else happened on April 19th, 220 years later? The Oklahoma City bombing, and that's what I'm doing. Wow. And another thing that happened on that date, two years before that, in 1993, 
was the culmination of the Branch Davidian siege in Waco, Waco Texas. Now, so, and I bring this up because it has significance. Right. I would in say the, the Oklahoma fact. Semi- right. The fact that Waco happened on that date is a coincidence. Oh, on the date of the Waco happened on April nineteenth. Yes. I mean, it was 50 yes. Days. That the fact that Waco happened on the same day as the Battle of Lexington and Concord, yes, that is a coincidence. When we're talking about the Oklahoma City bombing, we know for sure that he picked that date because of Waco. Yes. But he also, some people say he also picked it because of the battle. Although I think those people are giving freedom. (laughs) When I decided to do this, I didn't realize, or maybe I did in the back of my mind, that it is almost the 22nd anniversary today. Like you said, it's the 16th. So in three days. And it'll actually, that's interesting because the year it happened, it was Easter Sunday. And it was the, oh. What, Oklahoma City? Yeah, no, the Sunday a, before was Easter Sunday. Right, yeah, I was going to say it happened on no, a No, the Sunday prior yeah, to right. it was Easter right. Sunday. But it happened on a Wednesday, right. I believe. I, had, I would have to look at my internet calendar to be sure, but I think it was a Wednesday morning. So for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, here is the gist. At 9.02 a.m., April 19, 1995. That's central time. Yes. A rider rental truck filled with an explosive mix of ammonium nitrate fertilizer and gallons of fuel oil detonated in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And by the way, do you know who Alfred P. Murrah was? I did at one point, but I don't know now. He was one of the youngest federal judges in U.S. history. He was appointed by FDR in 1936 at the age of 32. He was from Oklahoma, obviously. He died in 1975, and the building was built in 1977. And I have to say, it was not a very attractive building. It was ugly. Yeah, but, you know. Anyway, back to the bombing. But uh, all I can picture is how it looked after I know, the I know. And seeing those pictures again after all these years, it just brought it Like the one of the fireman with the little girl. Oh, God. But anyway. Okay. Anyway, back to the bombing. 168 people died, and hundreds, some accounts say over 650, were injured. 19 of the dead were young children because there was a daycare center in the building. The rescue effort took two weeks, and over 300 buildings in the area were damaged. The main suspect, Timothy McVeigh, was arrested April 21st, so fairly quickly after the bombing. He was put to death on June 11, 2001. These are the bare facts of the case. Boy, he got executed quite quickly. You'll see why. But this is much more complicated than I originally thought when I started my research. I always accepted the conventional wisdom that was mainly some lone nut acting with the help of a couple of friends. Also arrested were Terry Nichols, who is serving life in prison now, and Michael Fortier, who was born in Maine. A lot of Michael But he 40s. didn't live here. I think he moved when I he was a kid. He moved to so, so And the, he the, served 12 years. The common wisdom is that Timothy McVeigh was kind of like the, the Lee, Harvey, yeah. Lee Harvey Oswald yes. of the yes. 90s. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but I do think there is more to the story than we have been told. I watched the recent American Experience Oklahoma City from PBS about the bombing, which is excellent. And has some great insights, but even that show kind of glossed over some of the questions that still are remaining about the bombing. And I want to apologize for not talking much about the victims specifically, but it's hard when there are that many people, 168 people, and I'm going to focus on the crime and the criminal. It would take us all day to talk Uh, about the victims. uh, Yes, but the American Experience documentary talks a lot about the victims and first responders and has a lot of... And we'll link to that. uh, Yes. Well, I had to watch it on uh, YouTube because if I went through PBS, it was $12.99 and I don't want to pay for it. it. So so I have a PBS app. I won't be able to watch that on my app? I tried, no. Bastards. No, because it just came out in February. And it's pretty good, but it kind of, 
I can't, it kind of takes the FBI's story at face value. I don't know. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it's just, ugh. I, I mean, it did have a lot of good, there were, I would recommend it highly, but I just, you have to do some other research too. But let's start by talking about the bomber, Timothy McVeigh. A young man only in his late 20s at the time of the crime, he was a decorated U.S. Army veteran who served in the Gulf War. One of his awards was a Bronze Star Medal. He earned several other awards. They had all these names. I don't know. It seems like it's just the kind of thing they're giving people to encourage them, you know. He was born either in Lockport, New York, or Pendleton, New York, depending on the source. He grew up in Pendleton, but uh, Lockport's right next may, to Pendleton. You know, it may be the kind of He was born in the hospital where there. Was, like how sometimes they say Carlton Fisk is from Vermont because the hospital was in Vermont, and we all know Carlton Fisk, the greatest catcher of all time in baseball, was born in New Hampshire. Okay. He just was. The hospital was. We all Vermont. know. I'm like, okay, if you say so. <laughs> the hospital was in Vermont. No, because it was like. I'm just saying. The, the hospital was in Vermont. Okay. But you say born. To me, when you say somebody's born somewhere. Yes. I'm sorry, this is a big newspaper issue I have. You're talking about where they lived when they yes, were born. Okay. Not. So that's why a lot of people say Pendleton, because that's where he grew up. And that's in the and Buffalo it's, area. It's in the Buffalo area. It's a little north of Buffalo. You know, it's like a suburb of Buffalo. He grew up in Pendleton, raised by his dad after his parents divorced when he was 10. And some people say that that was, oh, his mother leaving caused him to... It's always the mother's mm. fault. I don't think As we discussed in episode 18. He was a middle child, two sisters. He was close to his grandfather who passed on a love of firearms. He, Maybe that's what the problem He was. even brought guns to school to impress people. Yes, this was the pre-Columbine <laughs> era. When you could bring a gun to school. I mean, school. when I was in high school, they didn't bring guns, but people had rifle racks in their cars. Oh, yeah. And also, people would have hunting knives strapped to their, yeah. to their belts and stuff. We couldn't do that nowadays. No. He was very interested in gun rights and liked magazines like Soldier of Fortune and mm. Guns and Ammo. He graduated high school in 1986 and briefly, I think for like for a semester, attended Bryant and Stratton College in Buffalo, which is a for-profit school. I looked it up. It started out as a business school, mm. and then it, now it's a college. It's like a chain of business schools. It's, huh. Although he was smart in school, especially with computers, and some accounts said he hacked into government sites with his Commodore 64. Although I'm so ignorant about computer shit, I don't know much about what was going on with computers back then or how even one could hack into sites because there was no internet. I mean, there was kind of a loose internet, but it was in the 80s. I don't. I'm sure our readers some, will tell us. Some, they're not readers; they're listeners. <laughs> That's right. I mean, they might be readers too. But no isn't offense. that how like like Wozniak and those guys started messing around and know. hacking See, I just, around? I don't know. I, I think I heard that on a podcast once. Yes. To tell you the truth, he was named Starpoint High School's most promising computer programmer. Oh, even, so he and his three nerdy friends. Yes. Yeah. Even so, his Sorry. grades were poor both in high school and college. I think he was just probably one of those people who was smart but lacked motivation. You know, he was interested in what he was interested in. Yeah, I think you know. there's a lot of people like that. They yeah, can't like fit into the probably. box. Around this time, he apparently discovered the book The Turner Diaries, a novelized memoir of a white supremacist anti-government guy <laughs> written by William Pierce and published in 1978. He wrote it under the pseudonym Andrew MacDonald. Mm. The book tells of a violent revolution in the U.S., the results of which are the overflow 
overthrow of the government, a race war, and a nuclear war. Mm. Pierce is the founder of the white nationalist organization called the National Alliance. Not surprisingly, in his book, all the people he doesn't like, Jews, gays, anyone who isn't white, are exterminated. Ah. Of course, all the anti-government gun lovers embrace this book. The Southern Poverty Law Center calls it the Bible of the racist right. Mm. And I wrote, ha ha, I wonder if there's a racist left. (laughs) Maybe. You never know. There could be. But they're so liberal, they don't know they're racist. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it's a racist right. Anyway, McVeigh loved the book. Now, there are some people who say he was not racist, but I find this hard to believe. Because he hung out and befriended all these I'd white like supremacist to know, assholes. I, you know, I always feel like there's... Who's saying it? White there's people? There's absolutely no credibility to anyone who says anyone who's a racist isn't a racist. Well, listen if to that this. Makes sense. So some people say he was most interested in gun rights and hating the government. He wasn't interested in race. But I don't know about that because, for example, he, when he was in the Army, he was reprimanded for wearing a white power T-shirt that he bought at a Ku Klux Klan rally. The rally, the Ku Klux Klan were rallying in protest against black service members who wore black power T-shirts like around the base. 15 things you just said in that sentence indicate he's a racist. I know. I mean, even if... He got a t-shirt at a Ku Klux Klan rally. It was a white power t-shirt. He was at a Ku Klux Klan rally, first of all. Right. He bought a white power t-shirt. Right. Then he wore it. Right. It's just like people who fly the Confederate flag and say, I'm not racist. It's because of the tradition. Well, it's a tradition of racism. After his lackluster stint in college, McVeigh decided to join the army. He loved guns and he could play with them, so why I not? always think of that. Whenever some crazy gun nut joins the army, I'll, I'll stop interrupting you in a minute. But no, you won't. I know. That's okay. I always think of Alice's restaurant, you know, shrink, I want to kill, <laughs> I want to kill, I want to see blood and gore. But yeah. anyway, fun. He did well, uh, winning medals and awards for his shooting skills. He wanted to join the special forces after serving in combat for a couple of years, so he entered, he entered the selection process, but apparently wasn't in good enough uh, physical shape to qualify and dropped out after two days. Oh, come on, do some push-ups. I know. Well, he was bad skinny. And at the time, the Army was trying to cut costs and offered him the option of an honorable discharge, which he took. He worked briefly in the Buffalo area after getting out of the Army, and he bitched to co-workers about the government, and he wrote letters to the editor, and the one that is often quoted has him saying, quote, Is civil war imminent? Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? (laughs) I hope it doesn't come to that, but (laughs) it might, end quote. Everybody who's ever... He's going to run for president. I know, I know. Everybody who's ever worked for a newspaper... Knows this guy. Yeah. There were, he wrote we, lots. If you read the letters to the other, there's certain people I see their yes. names over and over and over again. And they're always stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, that guy again. He left the area around 1992, saying that Buffalo is too liberal. He traveled the country visiting old army buddies, going to gun shows, and selling stuff at gun shows. Some places said he sold uh, guns, but I think he also sold survival, you know, survival stuff. stuff. Yeah. And he sold, like, Bumper stickers and crap like that. He liked the gun shows because he met like-minded gun and anti-government types and they could whip each other up into frenzies. Mm. He also visited a lot of militia groups after meeting members at various gun shows. So he was he was enjoying himself. I've never been to a gun show, but with my ex-husband, I used to go to these camera shows because he was a photographer and he liked to collect antique cameras. And you wouldn't believe these big shows. If you are not... A collector of whatever it is the show you're going to, it is 
weird. And the people are weird. And they're all talking to each other and you're just like, like they're talking another language and you're just like, this is fucked up. So I can just imagine what a gun show would be like. Right, and also a lot of people go to gun shows and there's a big one in Augusta every year at the Civic Center. And a lot of people go to them because you can buy a gun at a gun show. It's the loophole. Right. The gun show loophole. Right, gun show loophole. He was unhappy with life. He was unable to forge any lasting relationships with women. I read that he only had one girlfriend, which I didn't think was that weird because he was only in his early 20s. I know. How many girlfriends are you supposed to have? He, He was not happy with the Army after washing out of Special Forces. And also, the Army had informed him that he had been overpaid to the tune of about $1,000 and had to pay it back. Uh Uh-uh. So he already was disenchanted with the government, but that pissed him off really bad. It just bolstered his anti-government sentiment. He was also upset about the election of Bill Clinton, as a lot of them were, because Bill Clinton had campaigned on a gun control platform, and they did not want their guns taken away. Sometime during McVeigh's alt-right odyssey, (laughs) the Ruby Ridge incident happened. Ruby Ridge, Idaho, was the site of an 11-day standoff between Randy Weaver, an anti-government guy, and the U.S. Marshal Service and the FBI. Ruby Ridge is a remote area near the Canadian border. I don't want to go into too much detail because we could do a whole show On about Ruby, Ruby Ridge. Ridge. Yeah. But the upshot is the U.S. Marshals Service went to Weaver's home on August 21st, 1992 to serve a bench warrant for his failure to appear in court on gun charges. A firefight ensued, leaving Weaver's 14-year-old son, Sammy, dead, and Deputy U.S. Marshal William Francis Deegan, age 42, dead. Also, the family dog was shot and killed. I don't know what breed it was, sorry. Mm. I know. The FBI got involved because of the firefight, and Weaver, his wife, he had, I think he had three remaining children, one which was a baby, and family friend Kevin Harris holed up in the home. Vicki Weaver, Randy's 43-year-old wife, was shot by an FBI sniper while holding their baby. I've read a 10-month-old baby, and I've read a 14-month-old baby, but it was a baby. Yeah, A baby girl. And it was a mess from beginning Mm -hmm. to end. They didn't need to go up there with that kind of force. He was, the first thing about it too is he was kind of entrapped. He was arrested for selling sawed-off shotguns, but somebody had kind of entrapped him into, do, like talked him into sawing off the shotguns and selling them to him, an agent. So it was kind of like, you know, it was fishy from the beginning and it just snowballed. Right. And it, it was just, it was a mess. So of course, Ruby Ridge became a rallying cry for all the people and at the gun shows and other anti-government people and white supremacists that McVeigh was nice, meeting on his It's always Odyssey. nice how once in a while the government will do something like that just to give all these people something to focus was, on, you know? In fact, while McVeigh was selling his survival items and copies, he oh, he sold copies of the Turner Diaries, too. Huh. Like, they didn't already all have it Where, so, at the gun shows. He, he was, like, buying them and then reselling them or so. something. Who knows? It's a gun show. He was also, he probably got, yeah, like, illegal printings of it. And I don't know who published the Turner Diaries. Maybe it was self-published. I don't know. <laughs> In fact, while McVeigh was selling his survival items and copies of the Turner Diaries at gun shows, he was also handing out free cards printed with the name and address of Lon Horiuchi, the FBI sniper at Ruby Ridge. He said he was hoping someone in the Patriot Movement would assassinate 
Horiuchi. And Horiuchi was later charged with manslaughter in Idaho. But McVeigh also wrote hate mail to Horiuchi saying what goes around comes around. Mm-mm-mm. And right now I want to stop and do a little like sidebar, go off on a bit of a tangent to talk about another white supremacist, Robert J. Matthews, Bob Matthews as he was known, born in Marfa, Texas in 1953, raised in Phoenix, Arizona. He joined the John Birch Society at age 11. Mm. He became a Mormon during high school, which, of course, is very, you know, welcoming to black people. About age 20, he was arrested for tax fraud. He claimed 10 dependents as an act of tax resistance. Oh, there's an idea. And he was on probation for six months. He left the Mormon church and the group, he had formed a group called Sons of Liberty that they disbanded. And so he moved to Washington State with his dad, bought land, got married, and raised Galloway cattle. This was in the mid-70s to early 80s. In 1982, he formed the White American Bastion and tried to get white families to move to the Pacific Northwest to kind of make it a, you know, just all white. Isn't the Pacific Northwest already full of white families? Yes. I'm sure there's lots of white people there, but there's also a lot of Native Americans there. He spent a lot of time at the Area Nation compound in Idaho and made lots of friends and gained followers. He, too, fell in love with the Turner Diaries. And what's not to like? I know. In 1982, he also founded The Order with eight other men, a white supremacist group, and to raise money they started robbing armored cars and counterfeiting. Over the next couple of years, they committed quite a few robberies, and a couple members of the group spent time in jail. Their most brazen one was a robbery of a Brinks truck, which netted $3.6 million, and it was like in a broad daylight, they shot through the windshield. Where was that? On the highway. It was somewhere in their northwest somewhere. Mm. I didn't get the details because it was just, I want to get an overview of him. Um, They gave some of that money to other white nationalist organizations around the country. And one of the guys who was in jail for counterfeiting ratted him and the order out. And the FBI eventually tracked Matthews to a house on Whidbey Island in Washington State on December 7th, 1984. This began a standoff that lasted until the next day when gunfire was exchanged and the FBI fired M79 Starburst flares into the house. I don't know what those are, but they're some kind of flare. They sound bad. They ignited a box of hand grenades and a bunch of ammunition that he had stockpiled, (laughs) and they set the house on fire. He apparently continued to fire as the house burned, but ended up dying of smoke inhalation and burns. And I read that they found his body next to a bathtub, so he was probably in a bathtub full of water thinking that would help Hmm. him keep shooting. His death was probably the first of that era, martyrdom, and the cause of white supremacists, and it spurred a lot of recruiting. So by the time Timothy McVeigh got on the scene, it was a pretty big uh, movement, I think. Pretty strong. It still is. I mean, mm-hmm. it's worse now. The anti-government white supremacy movement grew quite a bit during that time. In one of the articles I read that was printed pre-Obama's election, it was like mid-2000s, said, oh, by the 90s it had slowed down quite a bit. Well, I think in 2008 it got a big mm-hmm. boost again. Yep. And I don't know what the numbers are now, but I can just imagine. So back to Timothy McVeigh. While he was traveling around the country visiting old friends and making new ones, he decided to go to Waco, where in the spring of 1993, March of 1993 to be exact, a standoff had begun at the Branch Davidian Compound, or Mount Carmel, as it was known. (laughs) A religious cult, the Branch Davidians were, that had branched off from the Seventh-day Adventists. Again, it's a long story. But the main point is, a lot of poor decisions were made by the ATF, which is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, otherwise known as a fun party, (laughs) and the FBI. Oh, that joke never gets old. I know. 
In the first raid, four ATF agents were shot, and some people say by friendly fire, but I don't know. I don't believe that fully. Yeah. Uh, because the Branch Davidians were well-armed. That's one of the reasons they were trying to raid them. Yep. Six Branch Davidian members were killed, too. At the end of the 51-day siege, 76 more people, 22 children under the age of 17, were dead. And because, I, and the reason there were so many children there is because the Branch Davidians, like other cults we've discussed, had one guy who said, I'm the leader, right, so I get to have sex with yes. everyone and father He had lots of wives. And the, it, there's a lot of, that's another one that there are, it's so... I can't even go into all the reasons. Yes. And things that happened. And that yeah. was a total fucking yeah, mess. Yeah, Janet Reno. Poor J- Janet Reno was told mistruths about what was going on, mm-hmm. too. And she was new to the job. And, and she, she got, believed what she was told. Right. She got jerked over. She did. And I'm not sympathetic to religious cults or anti-government militias, but the whole incident no, was idiotic and un- unnecessary. And I know it's easy to say it after the fact, but even at the time, people were questioning. Well, they knew the Branch Davidians were tipped off, and they still did the raid, which well, was ridiculous. Just like a World Affairs, we too often respond to things with might. And the response seems to be firepower and killing people rather than figuring out some better. The way they started it off. It started off bad and it just got worse. They knew that they were tipped off. Right. When you read the FBI page, they paint that because I read some info on the FBI about all of these incidents just to see what their take was. Of course, they paint themselves in a wonderful light. And even and that was one of the problems I had with the. With the PBS, with the American Experience documentary, they talked to a lot of FBI agents, which is fine, but they all tried to make it sound like that nothing they did was wrong and the and David Koresh was evil, and I'm not agreeing with him, with any of his, I don't agree with the fact that he was a cult leader and the, whatever shit he did, but... It was pretty stupid to know that these people who are heavily armed know that you're going to raid them and you still go through with it. That doesn't right. make any sense to me at and all. So that's and the, that's what started the whole thing. Right. And so and so this is the American Experience episode about Oklahoma City. Yes, they talk about they that. talk about the branch. McVeigh, during the standoff, before the culmination of it, he decides to go to and Waco. As any white supremacist would. There were tons of people. There was like... Just to check it just out. Just like at the, at the Ruby Ridge one. They had a roadblock there and there were all these people hanging around. They have film of them like, you're... You know, they're yelling at, you know, all the ATF agents and stuff telling mm-hmm. them that they're a, they're a disgrace to white people everywhere. There were a bunch of people fucking weirdos hanging up. They they um, One of the reporters they talked to said that there was a... It was a hill that was like about three miles away but you could see the the compound, and that's where all the people were, and that's where Timothy McVeigh, he was driving around the shitty car, he stopped there to sell bumper stickers, or anti-government bumper stickers, and they have a, a film of him talking, and I want to say there was, one of the things I watched was a stupid, I think it was British, that the narrator was British, so they, the guy that played Timothy, it was like, had re, re, oh, they had to reenact yes! an American experience? No, 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 it was another one I oh, watched. Okay. They had reenactments, and um, the guy that played Timothy McVeigh, he looked a lot like him, but he had like a southern accent, which huh. is driving me fucking nuts. Yeah. But I think it's because, I think, no offense to British people. They didn't know the difference. I think that they think all Americans talk like, yeah. especially someone that's going to bomb somebody some, like from a white Buffalo. Actually, somebody from Buffalo, New York would have an accent very similar to ours. Yes, yeah. And Timothy McVeigh didn't have a southern because accent. Because we're not originally from Maine, we're originally from western New York. Yes, we are. With this very distinct accent. 
Yes, although ours is kind of messed up. It is. <laughs> so anyways, he was there. He, he went there, and the, there's a film of him talking, and a woman who was a college student, and she was a student journalist, interviewed him. The film of him is just spouting a bunch of anti-government bullshit. But it's funny because his demeanor is... Like, I saw uh, an interview with him with Ed Bradley. Bradley. Thank you. I couldn't remember his name. On 60 Minutes. He has a very... Timothy Mouvet has a very calm demeanor. Like, you know how on movies and stuff, they always make people who would do something like bomb... Like all crazy. Yeah, and like giggly and and, wild-eyed. Right. And he wasn't, you know? People lack imagination when it comes to depicting And I'm not saying people. he was insane. I think he had issues, no. but he was, whatever, he's a fucking asshole. But anyways, when Mount Carmel caught on fire and the shit hit the fan, he was not still in Texas. He was at his friend Terry Nichols' house in Kansas. And McVeigh later said that he started crying watching it on TV, thinking of the children who died. Aww. Which I find kind of ironic. It's ironic considering what he, he ended up He fucking killed him. Yeah. The Brady Bill, which limits assault weapons, was passed soon after the Branch Davidian thing happened. And the gun people did not like this at all. It was further proof of the government taking away guns and infringing on their sacred Second Amendment rights. Damn government. Fucking Bill Clinton. Ah. Take so, away the gun. Around that time is when they started plotting. And I can't think of any better way to protest having your gun taken away than going and killing people. Yeah. You know, because that makes your point so well. Yeah, well, you know, he didn't use guns. Oh, that's true. He blew them up. It's not guns that kill people. No. It's It's the government. (laughs) I'm joking. I I don't think that. We're just joking, people. Please. Apparently, he staked out a few places, but settled on the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. He never really said exactly why, but there are several theories, of course, because people have to theorize. One was that the, because the ATF had an office there, and he thought that some of those ATF agents were involved in Waco. Did he have any ties to Oklahoma? No. You know, he blamed the ATF for what Although happened Although, he Waco. probably drove through Oklahoma City between visiting Terry and Kansas and being in Waco. He may have. According to Michael Fortier and uh, some other people, he staked out other places like Dallas and some other places, but there were reasons why. A lot of people thought it was because the ATF had an office there. Some people said he originally had picked the courthouse next door and was going to park in the underground parking lot that the two buildings shared, which would have been inspired by the World Trade Center bombing of 1993 not to be confused with the other one the other which wasn't really a bombing no the truck was too high to fit through the entrance uh-huh. another theory i saw which is kind of i don't know kind of out there said that he picked the building because it provided good camera angles which would photograph well for television and he wanted his message to be known hmm. so what happened was this a rider truck was rented in Junction City, Kansas. Timothy McVeigh, with the help of others or not, depending on the source, spent a week in Gary Lake State Park in Kansas assembling the bomb, which contained 4,800 pounds of explosives. Was he camping or something? No, he I mean, was staying in a he was staying in a hotel. But they but I don't know. He was staying in a hotel or a motel. I mean, but he that maybe they parked they did the bomb there, not at the hotel. They probably had to go somewhere where they right. could work on the bomb. It was a bunch of uh, drums and right. somebody. They had like a, they had like a diagram of it, but I couldn't figure it out because I'm stupid. On April 19th, he drove it to Oklahoma City, parked it, lit two fuses, and walked away, letting it explode. A third of the building was demolished. The nine floors collapsed upon each other, and a huge crater was blown into the street. 
and as I said, 168 people died. And wasn't the daycare center like right in the front of the building? He parked right in front of the day where the daycare center was. Did, did he know that? He says he did not know. He claims he didn't know. I don't think he knew where it was. Although if he had walked, if he had staked it out and walked into the building, which I don't know if he ever did, I think he just drove by and saw where it was. McVeigh claims he did not know children were in the building. But I think he he must have known that there were... I mean, he knew there'd be people in there. Why wouldn't there? There's a social right. security office. There could have been kids in there. Right. Um, some other people have said he and Terry Nichols, his army buddy and convicted co-conspirator, knew but didn't care. And McVeigh later called them collateral damage. So, yeah. He bought a piece of shit car that he parked near the bombing site, had no license plate, and he used it for a getaway car was an old Mercury Marquis Yellow. Mm-mm-mm. A cop stopped him about an hour and a half after the bombing as he was driving down the interstate toward Kansas. He had a gun in the car but no license to carry, and he told the cop he had a gun when he got stopped. He had no license to carry in Oklahoma, so he was arrested. He was in jail when the FBI figured out the identity of the bomber, so they were able to arrest him quickly. How did they figure out his name? I will tell you. Okay. There was a lot of news about John Doe number 2, which the FBI later said was a mistake, but some people think there was a John Doe number 2. The FBI found the... This is how they caught him so quickly. I think it's serendipitous. At the time, I thought it was serendipitous, and I, I still do. I'm not a conspiracy theorist i think they really did this is how they caught him so quickly sometimes shit happens the fbi found the rear axle of the rider truck in the wreckage that had the vin on it not the vin number thank you the vehicle identification number vin from there they traced it to the rental place which was in junction city kansas um, they went there they got a physical description of the guy and they they got one of those little you know, drawings of his face, Composites. which did look a lot like him. The FBI agents were cam- were canvassing. Once they realized where the truck had been rented, and I, apparently Junction City looks like it's kind of a small town, they swarmed the area, canvassing all the ho- motels. They stopped at the Dreamland ho- Motel in Junction City, asked the manager if any guests were driving a rider truck. Why, yes. She said, and they looked at the register, and he had signed his real name. What a dumbass! So it was basically just good old-fashioned police. They did do. They did. They did. Oh God, that picture of the firefighter with the baby. The FBI were able to search arrest records. They wanted to see if if this Timothy McVeigh had an arrest, any uh, you know arrests or something they could find. Had a record. Had a record and. Luckily, they found out he was in custody in Oklahoma, and he was just about to get sprung. Wow. And when FBI agents picked him up, they asked him if he knew why they were there, and he said something like, does it have to do with the bombing? (laughs) Whoops. Terry Nichols surrendered in Kansas the same day McVeigh was arrested and identified in the media on April 21st. Michael Fortier was also arrested, but agreed to testify in exchange for a reduced sentence. By the time the bombing happened, he was kind of out of the picture anyway. Even though he knew about it, he decided he didn't like what was going to happen. But he and his wife both knew and did not say anything or warn anybody. What was Fortier's um, role? He, he lived in Arizona. I think he helped with the planning. But um, he chickened out. He chickened out. I think he helped with some of the um, recognizance, you know, when they were looking at different courthouses and stuff. Supposedly, Nichols was also having cold feet right before the bombing Easter Sunday. McVeigh threatened to kill Nichols' family if he didn't help. 
and Nichols helped assemble the bomb but didn't go to Oklahoma City. But I think I think Nichols just said that about his threatening to kill his family because, come on, he wasn't going to do that. McVeigh eventually confessed to everything, drawing maps, answering questions, and taking credit for the whole thing. He was indicted on August 10, 1995, on 11 federal counts, including conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, use of a weapon of mass destruction, destruction with the use of explosives, and eight counts of first-degree murder. Those eight counts were federal charges for the ATF officers. The other 160 deaths were under the state jurisdiction of Oklahoma. The federal government knew they'd probably get the death penalty, so I guess Oklahoma was just like, fine. Right. McVeigh wanted to use the necessity defense, but they ended up not doing it because they could not prove he was in under imminent danger. So the necessity defense would be kind of like self-defense, like I'm trying to protect myself. L- like that's I'm in imminent that- danger. Okay, I was going to say that's a, a defense, I think, and I could be wrong about this, that gets used a lot when people kill doctors who perform abortions and yeah. stuff because we're preventing many of yes. us from dying <laughs> by killing it's this kind person. kind of ironic. Yeah. As part of his defense, his team showed the anti-government film Waco, The Big Lie. Mm. On, June 2nd, ni- on June 2nd, 1997... McVeigh was found guilty on all counts of the federal indictment, and on June 13, 1997, the jury recommended the death penalty. While his unsuccessful appeals were pending, McVeigh was housed at the United States Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility, or ADX, in Fremont, Colorado. Mm -hmm. It's unofficially known as Florence ADX. McVeigh was housed in Bombers Row, with his buddy Terry Nichols. Oh, that's nice that they have a special little Listen to this. His buddy Terry Nichols, Ted Kaczynski. Oh. And the, who is the Unabomber. Yes. Maybe someday we'll do oh, it. Oh, I, I desperately want to do the Unabomber. And Ramsey Youssef, who was the World Trade Center bomber. Wow. Youssef apparently made frequent attempts to convert McVeigh to it, Islam. It's like a, it's a who's who. Of I know. Also, there was some other gang member guy there, but he wasn't a bomber, so I didn't put him in the bomber's row. In 1999, McVeigh was transferred to the U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. He decided to drop all remaining appeals, saying he'd rather die than spend the rest of his life in prison. He also claimed his objective had originally been state-assisted suicide, and he wanted his execution broadcast, but that request was denied. An internet company sued for the right to broadcast the execution, but that was unsuccessful. I remember that when they were they wanted to yes. do that. McVeigh was originally set to be executed on May 16th. 2001, but it was found that the FBI had withheld thousands of pages of documents to his defense team. U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft ordered a stay of execution for a month, although I don't know really what the point of that was. I I mean, and I don't know how... So they could review the documents that they had. Yeah, and see if there's anything in it. He was eventually executed by chemical injection on June 11, 2001. And do you know what his last meal was? Mint chocolate chip ice cream. Yes! And you know how I know that? Because I was just looking up pictures of him on my phone, and there were all these pictures of him with mint, and then juxtaposed with mint chocolate oh, chip really? ice cream. That's so weird. And do a Google search of Timothy McVeigh, and then do images, and all of a sudden you're getting pictures of mint chocolate chip ice cream. And I was going to ask you what the deal was with mint chocolate that chip was ice his cream. Last. Two oh, pints of mint chocolate chip. And when they asked him if he had any final words, he he said no. Ah. He was the first federal prisoner put to death since 1963. Since him, there have been two others, Juan Ruel Garza, who killed three people and ran a drug ring in Texas. He was executed only eight days after McVeigh. 
June 19th, 2001. And the third is Louis Jones, who kidnapped and murdered Army Private Tracy McBride. He was put to death March 18th, 2003. The next one will most likely be Zokar (laughs) Zarnav. The remaining Boston Marathon bomber. Mm-hmm. Which also happened mid-April. Yes, it did. Because it, so it's on Patriot's yeah. Day. Because that's when the Boston Marathon is run. Yes. Timothy McVeigh is still the only terrorist ever executed in the U.S. But, again, Zarnef will be the second. And I don't yep. consider him to be Islamic, even though a lot of people do. No, I consider, I consider him, him to be a dumb kid who didn't know what the fuck he was doing and was easily influenced by his nuthead brother who was Islam- he was islamic but he was also a nutcase and that's the problem i put them in the the nutcase who picked something right and timothy mcveigh something to do i don't think timothy <coughs> mcveigh was as much of a nutcase he was kind of obsessed I don't think he was, like, I think the, the, the San Bernardino bombers, uh, or shooters, too, I think of them as nutcases. Well, that it, it's almost like they're not in, they're not, like, doing it because they're religious. The religion has become the thing that they've obsessed right. about. That's that's what I was going to say, that they have that whatever, whatever personality defect or whatever they have, they latch onto something that makes them feel important and gives them a cause and gives them a rationalization for doing that thing. And if it weren't Islam in their case and Timothy McVeigh's case, well, white some supremacy and anti-government. Oh, right. Like that guy that was anti-abortion and shot people. I mean, right. they picked something. It's John Salvi. Right. And it's not necessarily, they're not... Uh, maybe I'm splitting hairs, but it's not like, oh, this this person is a poster child for terrorism of this ideology. Yeah. It's more like this person has a personality defect where they wanted this kind of power and attention, and this is the thing they latched yes. onto and convinced I, themselves I was the reason to do it. And now uh, I, there was I read it, and I didn't really talk about it much in my presentation, but there was an article in Vanity Fair in two thousand and. One after McVeigh by Gore Vidal. He and Timothy McVeigh had a correspondence. McVeigh Mm. wrote to him in 1998 while he was in prison because Gore Vidal wrote some anti-government article, I can't remember now, that McVeigh wanted to talk about. And they didn't agree on a lot of things, but they agree. Gore Vidal has a lot of good points. He goes a little too far. I think he was a little too sympathetic of McVeigh. But he... Oh, go, oh ahead. go ahead. But he also... No, I can't remember what I was going to say. I was going to say, you know what that makes me think of? And maybe you'll remember what you were saying. Oh, in Cold Blood? Yes, <laughs> of Truman Capote corresponding with Perry Smith yeah. in Cold Blood. And um, got it, P- getting a good book out of it. Uh, but Gore Vidal was convinced that there were other people involved. He didn't think that Timothy McVeigh did it himself. And I read a, another article in The Guardian that had a lot of good points. What they were saying was... First of all, they thought that the car he left there was not meant to be a getaway car because he took the license plate off. He had like a bunch of like stuff planted in the car, like anti-government tracks and stuff that they thought that it was meant to be left there as kind of a red herring. But whoever was helping him 
left like abandoned left him, him and he took in off. The lurch. And that some of the things that they brought up made sense. There were some other things like a ride another rider truck. Of course it could be a coincidence. There was another rider truck circling around in uh, an hour before and also a lot of the people that said they saw McVeigh with the rider truck in near Junction City had seen two rider trucks and they had mm. also seen like five people. He had been seen with other people a lot. So and there was probably other people uh, helping him assemble the bomb. Right. Although Besides he could he could have you know, gotten people to do different parts. But there of were some people that were identified as the known white supremacists. You know how they keep people on the right. radar. But I think what you were saying early, I think you said earlier when we were we weren't we were off tape was that maybe they didn't want to know. Right. Because it would open a can of worms. Right. They wanted to, especially after after Waco, that was such a mess. They wanted to. We wrap got a it guy. Up. We like, got a guy. Yeah. He's saying he did it. He's saying it was him. We and, can forget about some of this other stuff that we have questions about. It's wrapped up. It's done. And I think there's a resistance. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know about this in a lot of detail. I admit, but my, I feel as though there's a resistance to wanting to know too much about domestic homegrown yes. terrorism. Yes. It, if we, if the boogeyman doesn't look like us and comes from somewhere else and has some religion that we don't understand it's much easier to pursue it and yes. focus on it and and get what you want if you're the FBI to get the resources you need and people behind you than it is to start poking around in white national supremacy alt or alt right America which even 20 years ago was a tough cookie and now given the political climate God, you're talking about luck. people and who, you know um another thing Remember how rider trucks used to be yellow, and yeah. after that they changed the color of them? Now what are they? I thought they were white. Oh, they are? Or vice versa. Whatever yeah. it was, they... They were yellow. The rider trucks yellow. got... Yeah, they were yellow, and they got such a bad rap yeah, from that that they changed them to because white. Because that Yusuf guy, the guy from the... He used a rider truck, In too. the 1993 yes. World Trade Center. Yes. Yeah. They were like the the truck so, of I remember choice Gordon, of my my ex husband Gordon and I making that joke. Ooh, yeah. right of truck. That should be their new right their new, their new logo. logo. The choice or, or, of bombers right. everywhere. Uh, but the other thing I was ha ha we can laugh. I know. And I remember either reading an in depth, maybe even a book, or seeing a documentary that focused on like the last minutes before the bomb went off. And tell me if you know any of the details about this. McVeigh, there's something about him stopped at a stoplight. And somebody, he he almost felt like somebody was watching him too much. And something about him smoking a cigarette that I don't even remember. But that he might have parked the truck not where he had intended to. Well, he tried. Or, okay, no. The, what happened? What I just, what I read in probably the Guardian article was saying he was going to park it underneath and he couldn't fit. And so then he was going to park it in an alley between the courthouse and the and the Murrah building. And there were ATF agents doing something there, and they were parked there. So he couldn't park it there, and he got antsy. And then he parked it on the street and, okay. and in front of the building, and that was under the daycare. But I don't think he knew that that that, that was under the daycare. Yeah. I'm, I'm I mean, I'm not saying that he... I think he did know there were probably children in the building and my guess didn't is, give a shit. My guess is a young single man is going to be one of the last people in the world who's going to say, gee, they may have a daycare center in this building full of kids. Although he was crying over the Waco kids. So, well, that was a... That was a you and know, it's just funny a vague... how they embraced them because that was a, a multi-ethnic 
group of people. They they only embraced them because, because the government did something too. bad. Yeah, and they were and they, they only were, embraced they them. Guns too. They only embraced them because the choice was because they wanted to have a reason to dislike According the government. According to some of the other that stuff I read too, Gore Vidal had a lot of stuff, and so did the Guardian article about people knowing that it was um, somebody had. That the problem was the ATF and the FBI were not talking to each other. They were that sounds stupid. They weren't talking, but they weren't in communication with each other. And apparently, one of them had gotten a tip from some white supremacist. Some there was a mole or some a woman um, in one of the. She was in one of the white supremacist groups. I think she was an FBI agent, and she warned them that that someone was planning a bombing in Oklahoma. In April, she knew it was going to be sometime in April. They did not inform the ATF about it, and there was a lot of anecdotal stuff like that. That well, someone knew this, and someone knew that, and no one told anyone. So, and there may have been. I mean, there probably if he was planning. It sounded like when he was going around the country, like he started formulating this plan, and I don't know if he was the. I think he probably was the mastermind, but he he had a lot of help. I think a lot of people knew about it because he was trying to recruit people to help him. Mm. So people knew about How it. How recruit somebody for that? Well, when you're in these white supremacist yeah, groups. Yeah, that's true. I hate the government. Well, I'm going to do this bombing. You want to help me? Oh, I don't know. One of the things that always struck me about it was he did all this planning about the bomb and shit. Well, uh, he was so stupid about things. Maybe like, he thought he was going to, maybe he thought he was going to die with, maybe he huh. was going to kill himself. Well, or maybe somebody was supposed to spirit him away. Right. And they spirit weren't there. Him. I mean, that's all I can think of. Like, why would he? Like, he wouldn't have taken you, that car without a license plate. Why do you sign your real name? Plate. That was stupid. They, Unless you uh, are gonna die. That's in why. It. If he thought he was, maybe he thought there was a but chance he was gonna die. That could be. But even if you just think there's a chance, if you're intentionally gonna die, yeah, put your real name because you want everybody to know. Hey, I'm the guy yeah. who did this. But if and you think there's a chance I could die, you don't put your real name. I know, that was kind of weird. You know, it just seemed like he had all this, well, it just shows he, know, he had all this. would have gotten caught right away. I all mean, this thought process and planning that went into the bomb, but not a lot into the stupid details. Yeah, Like, don't you know the truck isn't going to fit? I know. I know. Don't you that know? Was, that was stupid. I mean, it, it just shows that, you know, he staked out the building. He planned I it. I know. I know. You know, it just shows, you know, a lot of Hell, you can't criminals think of trip themselves up on stupid shit. Gore Vidal kept saying how in- intelligent he was and stuff, which he, I'm sure he was. But he also... You, you know what? So what? That fucking you know what? So what it's if he was like, smart? Yeah, know. You know, I hate it when that is used as this like positive thing to say about somebody. Being, it, you know, people are smart, people are dumb, whatever. So what? Yeah, he was so lacking. What? He empathy. wasn't smart he was... enough not to put his fucking name. I know, I know. He wasn't smart enough to know the truck wasn't going to fit under the building. Who gives a shit how smart he was? You know, but it is it is smart enough to kill a bunch of people and get himself caught. It's interesting to me Sorry. that for nine eleven, that was the worst act of terrorism, it killed the most people in our country, and it wasn't. And remember, right after they thought it was some, they the, they immediately said, and I got in a big argument before with McVeigh them. was caught. It was immediately yes. assumed. I remember that. Yes, I um, got in a big argument with somebody about this. Somebody so who did is I. who is somebody who's very pro-Israel argued with me that that never happened. And this was in the '90s. This person argued with me. He said they did not. They did not detain Middle Eastern people. I'm like they sure they as did. hell did. 
They did before. And they, they, and they show the clips on the on the yes. Ameri- on the documentary. Yes. The, the, People I, saying I it has Islam written all over. It and right, I remember that being pissing me off. That the that the immediate assumption was it was a Middle Eastern. And you know, some of the conspiracy theories theorists, which I think is stupid, have a theory that somehow McVeigh teamed up with Islamists to do this crime. What a pile like, of bullshit. bullshit. He would they wouldn't have anything to do with some Middle that Eastern would, person. That would that would totally miss his point, the point he was trying to make. He was trying to start a he race wa- war. race war. He said he was Delta Skelter. Not really a race no. because he wasn't his focus supposedly wasn't racism. It was anti government. Right. He wanted a re- like to a re- revolution. He wanted a revolution. And in the Turner Diaries the guy blows up a, a federal building or not yeah. a federal building, a courthouse or the White House or so I don't know. See, people talk about how smart people like that are, but I'm like, everyone. There's a lot of smart people around. Yeah. So, so fucking so what? Yeah. And that was, I think, part of the inspiration. And I could be wrong for the Columbine boys. The it be they they said that they were going to do it. We, they we were, were going to do it on it April nineteenth, nineteen ninety nine. And then they decided to get more ammo. So they did it on April 20th, but which was Hitler's birthday. Yeah, so they figured so that was So it was good. a good, because you have to do it on a special day if you're going to go shoot a bunch of people for no good April's reason. April's not a good month. It's the cruelest month. Because, as Tennyson said. As, I think, what else happened in April? Didn't that, um... I was born. Yeah, that, yeah. But I remember, because I, when Hannah was born, I was recuperating. It was it's a long story, but I had to recuperate, and I was at Mom and Dad's house watching TV constantly. And that was when that oil tanker in the Gulf exploded. Oh, it yeah. was April. And that, but March was when there was, <laughs> when there was that, that, a lot happened in that month or so. I was told, yeah. March, uh, that earthquake and tsunami happened in oh, Japan. Yeah. Wow. It was 2011. Yeah. That thing exploded in April and then it just spurted oil for what in the six months yeah God only knows just what happened coated the Gulf and then Charlie Sheen thing happened is that it when that happened around that time March well April. it was because I was watching him on TV it was well that must have been 2010 because no, April it was 2011 it okay was because Hannah was born okay because April 2011 is when I left the union leader and moved back to Maine and I think my last day there was April 15th. No, Charlie was the, was the like, March. Right, because I said yeah. I cut out that quote because I identified oh, winning? it. Oh, the no, winning. not not winning. You can't, you can't possibly, under, possibly, possibly understand my brain. Hey, Charlie, you have to tell us what that quote And was. I identify I know he with, with Charlie Sheen. But we're, we're good enough. I like Charlie you know, Sheen. I mean, uh, I don't I used like to say a lot of his... Here, here's one of the things I always use. The way he treats women, no, I don't I, like. No, there's a lot of things I don't like. I think he's misunderstood in some ways, not the I, he think, treats women. I don't take him well. I didn't take most of what he was saying seriously. Right. I think he was just saying shit and for people, the hell of it. But like we do. Like we do. Well, I was going <laughs> to say one of the things that I was never that never made me popular at work. <laughs> my sense of humor. I would say like I'd make a joke that nobody would get, or people would deliberately pretend they didn't get because they didn't want to give me the benefit of laughing. And I'd say, oh yeah, I forget I have to dumb myself down. Oh. <laughs> you know, but it's just. Being funny, yeah. But, you know, uh, it's hard. It's hard being. So that was a good topic. Did you have anything else you want to say about I it? I can't remember. There's a lot of things. I mean, there's there's so much information. I, I feel like not. you know what? One thing I've always felt about this is people forget. 
People, oh, I know what I wanted to say. Yes, people. Okay. I was going to make a big point. Oh, okay. Go ahead. You say your, it was your topic, so you can say No, uh, one thing that irritated me in this documentary is the cluelessness of many of the uh, people, talking heads that they had. And there was one guy. I hate fucking talking heads. It's all men. Like the FBI. Just, did, 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 did. Uh, you know, come on. Yeah. There's one guy that was like, the sense of, you know, we all, you know, when we saw who, when we finally saw who the bomber was, we were all saying it was one of us, the sense of betrayal. And Get I'm like, your head out of your ass. He wasn't one of, of I didn't think he was one of us. All the the fucking FBI shouldn't feel betrayed. He wasn't a white no, American. wasn't an FBI oh. agent. Oh. No, what Never he's mind. saying is, as a white American, he felt betrayed because it was one of our own. It's like it was one of your own. I felt, I was like, no shit. It was some fucking white supremacist, not a Muslim. That's what I thought yeah. when they caught him. I thought uh, figures well, is what I thought. Well, and that's one thing that people are so shocked, ooh, an American would do this. And it, I think if you add up all the <laughs> all the death and all the, oh, all the unnecessary, all the violent shootings in America... Y- very few of it is by people who aren't from America or aren't white. I know. Well, look at all the post office shooters from our episode <laughs> ab- about going postal. And, and all just white. all of the, you think of the mass but shooters. I don't want to get into a big race thing here, but I, but, but, but also the more, don't assume. The more, well, no, I was going to say, the first of all, the more people are ooh, shocked by the fact that it was, you know, a guy who quote unquote looked like any one of us or was one of our own or whatever. That as long as people think like that, shit like this is going to happen. I know. And the fact that it was, it's aside from 9 11, the biggest, the most deadly act of terrorism on U.S. soil. And people have, per, kind, I'm not, people haven't necessarily forgotten about it, but people equate, like, I know the Boston Marathon bombing was bad. Yes. And I know it only happened four years ago, so it's still fresh in people's mind. And I know three people died, including an adorable little yeah. boy um, who had that sign at school that said, can't we all love each other? And he was just an adorable, sweet little boy and two women who were good people. And a lot of people lost limbs, but... Oklahoma City, holy fucking shit! I know, I know. And I'm not saying, oh, we should, you know, compare which is worse, blah blah blah. But when you look at those Oklahoma, yeah. I mean, I mean, for for emotional value, yeah, Boston Marathon was bad because of all the thousands of people there and the, the potential for a yes. lot of people getting killed, and it had an impact on so many people because so many people are there. It had an emotional impact on so many people. People who ran the marathon. You know, I ran the marathon and four times. And it was times. Patriots Day. Yeah. But I feel like people forget how bad. That was bad. The o- I want everybody who's listening to the, this to Google Oklahoma City look bombing and do images. Look and at look the at images. the way that fucking building. There was, the, oh, look there at was, the fireman carrying the baby with and there's, the And there was baby. a, um, they were talking to a guy, um, I think he was a doctor, the first responders called him because there was a woman, a young woman whose leg was pinned under a beam or something. And he said when he got there, and this was right after, you know, he had to amputate her leg. And I thought, I thought of you because of, of, your of book. my book that I'm writing. Yes. So, and you, so you should watch it even for just this. So oh, he said he went through, it was very difficult to do. He had That's a to do it. There's a bone there in your thigh. Um, and he, they were also worried that the, it was still precarious. It was very, it was... Like the, the yeah. building would tumble yes. down. He said there was someone holding the beam so it wouldn't move. 
and he went through all his blades and they all broke and he had a pocket he had a knife in his pocket he had to use that to cut the last whatever it was well she was asleep she i mean he gave her anesthesia he was a doctor but still i thought ah i mean and that's the type of i mean it was horrible all those little babies i mean they were babies they were babies it was was a daycare center it was a daycare center that a lot of people who worked in the building brought their children to so they were right there when it happened or they were hurt themselves. Or, you know, it's the kind of thing where, holy shit, this building just blew up and my baby is where oh. it blew up. Not that... I know. No, there was a mother on who, who lost her two children that said that. And you she just look at the memorial with there. the chairs I know. that they have. Even I know. That. Uh, it, was hor- it was a horrible thing. And you're right. I think that people forget. People forget how bad it was. It's easy to... I think people would rather focus on the boogeyman who isn't like, quote-unquote, like us, because we're all different. And the fact that he was put to death so quickly... Yes. Um, ...kind of gets there you out of your mind, it's long, over with. Right. And and I think people would rather focus on this amorphous, you know, like the, the Muslim ban. And people would rather focus on people who are different because it's a theme we've talked about in a lot of our episodes. Nobody wants to believe that someone who's like them could do something bad. And if you put people who do bad things in a totally different category and make them, they're not the same as you, they're not like you, they're different, and you can see them, you you can can recognize them when you you see them. Yes, you can. Look at Ted Bundy. But the other thing is, (laughs) the stranger beside me, but the other thing is that I didn't really talk much about, I mean, he was in the middle, all three, he, Terry Nichols, and Michael Fortier, they were all soldiers. They all fought in our army. Supposedly, they fought for our country. And yet, here they are and turning around. And were paid around, by the government. And here they are turning around and attacking our country. Yep. The thing is, the same things that make you a good soldier make you a bad citizen. In some ways. In some ways. Because you look, I think... I want to kill. I want to kill. I want to kill. I love that in Alice's restaurant. He's too crazy. <laughs> are you saying I'm too crazy? But he... No, it's because he had a littering conviction. <laughs> yeah. But that he couldn't go in the army. Because yeah. when he goes, I want to kill the shrink, goes, he's our boy. He's our boy, yeah. <laughs> but the, now I lost my train. Oh, I think most of the people who go into the military do it for honorable reasons. Oh, yeah, they do. But I think it also attracts somebody who says, I like guns. I want to be able to shoot things. And, uh, and and are attracted even to the way of life, Although to that, that regiment. One of, the thi- one of the things that disenchanted uh, McVeigh to the government was the war he was involved in. He did kill people while he was a soldier, and he didn't see the point of it and didn't see the point of the war. Which would, be, which, which he, would be almost make you sympathize with him until you realize he blew up a bomb that killed, what, 168 people. Uh, and he didn't, he was <laughs> not remorseful. None of whom did anything he wrong. He did not, he was not remorseful at all. I think he just lacked, he totally lacked how can any he call? Empathy. How can he be pissed off at the government for for sending him to a war that he thought was pointless and he had to kill people that were pointless and then call babies that he killed with his fucking bomb collateral damage? Because uh, he felt he was in, Because he was right. He Yes, uh-huh. because he was fighting for a, re- he had a reason for it uh-huh. in his mind uh-huh. that, he was fighting this war against the everybody who kills somebody. Take away our everybody guns. who kills somebody from the government killing people with the death everybody penalty has a to wars. Everybody thinks their reason the guy, is the, the dentist good. that has a hot girlfriend and want, doesn't want to pay alimony. Right, that's a good reason. Right, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. He thinks it's a good reason. A lot of doctors and dentists. I like that I one. We're gonna have to do. Yeah, I was saying to you today 
in a text because I read a story in the paper today where the guy is who killed oh, his yeah. pregnant wife. My love nugget. Or and he called, he, yeah, he texted his girlfriend and said, I'm going to be with you, my little love nugget, or whatever. Uh, he killed his pregnant wife. He's on trial. But that we should... And he was found a superficial... I know, a whole different story. But I was saying we should do... An episode. Guys that kill their wives and are and found then, with superficial wounds. Yeah, like Charles Stewart, who was famous in Boston. Oh, yeah, too? she was. She was. Damn. Pregnant women, the biggest cause of death for pregnant women in America is is homicide. Wow. We really got off topic. We did. <laughs> okay, so anyways, that is our topic. Well, thank you. That was a good topic. Yes, and I'm going to send your, your complaints to me. Yeah. At, to us. To us. At Please complain. Stuff. And oh, well, we, have, we usually do Matt, that at the end. Matt isn't here. Matt's uh, protesting against Matt's, us. Matt's, he's, we shouldn't say stuff like that, because people Matt. are going to think Matt doesn't no, like us. He, he loves he us. He just had to take, he, he's Well, no, we have, we have tough schedules yes, for us to all, the three of us, up. to get together. Yeah. But Matt will be back soon. We don't all live in the same house together. We were kind of, Even like though some dynasty, people think we do, but. Like yeah. We were thinking at one point of getting, having our brother Billy be our, like, stand-in ask a lawyer. But uh, that, that might would be, be too rough. much to take. I don't think our listeners could. our listeners, yes. Sorry, Billy. Uh, maybe sometime we can have Sometime we can have Billy stand in for us. So for we're going to go. So that's the end of our topic. And okay. then we're going to go right to our recommendations. Yes. <laughs> for our recommendation tonight, we're going to talk about our most recent favorite podcast. That isn't this podcast. Oh, well, besides this one. Besides this, this one is our favorite. We yeah. listen to it over and over again. I know. Until I want to kill myself. <laughs> no. But we both listened to S-Town, yes. which is actually Shit-Town. Yeah, Shit-Town. And I made a point, since since I wanted to listen to it cleanly and only finished listening to it today, of not listening to anyone else in podcast world talk about it. Because I didn't want to be influenced by any other opinions. So our discussion today is going to be... And I listened to it all in pretty much in one... Sitting. When you were driving to Rochester? Yeah, I had to drive to Rochester for my Aunt New York's funeral. Rochester, New York. It was about a nine-hour trip, so I was able to listen to you, the whole thing. You podcasted I listened out. to that. I listened to... Missing Richard Simmons. and I listened to some other stuff, too. Yeah. But we're today we're going to talk about Shit Town. Yes. And if you haven't listened to it, there's going to be spoilers. spoilers. Yes. So uh, if you don't like spoilers and intend to listen to it, as much as I hate to say this, you might want to not listen yeah, to us. On the other hand, our discussion always ends up being so fractured and, and diffused. And, yeah, that, that maybe it won't make sense. So what was your overall impression? I really liked it. And one of the things I liked, maybe one of the things that people won't like and that's, I started out listening to it, assuming it was going to be a true crime podcast. Yes, and I think a lot of people did because it was a serial. And very shortly in, one. I think the second episode, he found out the thing he was looking into hadn't happened. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, there's five more now episodes, what? so what's he going to talk yeah. about? And then I thought, okay, maybe there's going to be some twist. There's going to be some other crime. I mean, there's a lot of things with the guy. But it turned out what it was was a character study of... A person, and I know that doesn't sound like something that could sustain sustain seven hour long podcasts, but it was. He's a very complex. He. Was I found a very it fascinating. Person. I didn't want to stop listening. I usually listen in the car driving to work, and since my work is only fifteen or twenty minutes away, I would hate turning it off. Yeah, I was glad that I could listen to the whole thing in succession. And he, I think he does a a very good job of. 
I think the overriding theme is that it, this guy supposedly hated his little town in mm-hmm. Alabama, but he was of that town. And you find out as you go along that he didn't always hate the town. Um, he helped because it wasn't an actual town. It was part of another town, or and they broke un- off. Incorporated, but you maybe. find out toward in the seventh episode or sixth was episode. Six, it was the seventh. It was the seventh episode. You find that out. Yeah. So but, he he and he helped incorporate. And he's it. a very interesting person. He was a horologist, which is someone that restores, re- restores clocks, antique, clocks. antique clocks. And apparently, it's a lucrative business. But he, he he lived. He was kind of he eccentric. He lived very frugally. Lived with he his lived mom with his who mother, had dementia, and he was obsessive about climate change and things. He was obsessed with with the state of the world, climate change, and government. And I issues. think a lot of that was. First of all, I think he was interested in that stuff, but I think it was also a lot. A lot of it was just his anxiety and a metaphor for how he felt about Every, yeah, his, his life. life. I think his his life was really a struggle between, I think, the affection he actually felt for his town yes. and where he was from and his roots there and the fact that he was eccentric, he was different. He was very, very intelligent, probably genius And level. he, But unlike Timothy McVeigh, didn't feel the need to go blow anything up he except for himself. He was for himself, yeah. But, he, but I think he never found a good way to come to terms with who he was. He was gay who he was, and he, where he lived. And and I just want to say one thing before, and then I'll stop yeah. and you can talk, is that I li- really like the way the guy who did the podcast, Brian Reed, played it out. The reveals were parceled out in a way, yeah. like about the fact that John was gay, about the things that came in the last two episodes particularly. So it gave it this framework that yeah, really you already knew yeah that really worked you knew enough about John and what was going on that you can now know this and you can put it yes. in some context yes. like about the town being incorporated yes. and the work he did yes, because about his friendships yeah. which it, kind of in the middle of the pod the middle episodes started becoming more clear yes. about how he handled his friendships and what happened with those and so what did you well, think well no i i loved it it's one of those things you keep, th- you think about. It's like a book or... I kept um, thinking it was a book when I wasn't listening it to it. Wa- it's like a book with characters. You um, think, and he, he's obviously the protagonist, and Tyler is, is a, his pseudo-son is also a big character in the book, uh, the book, in the podcast. You think, like, the way, the thing I liked about it is you keep changing your... Your your view view or your opinion, like you think one thing about Tyler, and then you realize he's he's racist, like a, a lot of the other people in that town, which gives you know it's like mixed feelings about it because in some ways he's a good person who cares about John, he cares about John's mother, but in other ways he's, he's well. Tyler's he's, another person that if he had maybe been born in a different place or time would have been a different person, yeah, part because of he was, obviously uh, has uh, some. Uh, intelligence and a way of looking at the world that's different from some of the people in the town. Yes. But he's still of the town. And and then when the when John's cousin Rita shows up, you think, well, money the evil grubber. cousin money grubber. And then it, you, you meet her and she's not and it, it plays with your assumptions. But you also have to have to remind yourself when you're listening that every person is 
a three-dimensional person that has a lot of different sides to them, and you can't just assume from this one view of them that they're this certain type of person. And all the people in it, I thought, were were not either bad, bad or good. There, and and I thought he did a good job of being kind of removed. The from reporter. The reporter. Yeah. What was his name? Brian Reed. Brian Reed. He he was the narrator, definitely, but he was a little bit. He was kind of outside of things, telling us about right. Know, he didn't get. He befriended these people he without being involved. Like yes. he didn't try, for instance, to give somebody money when they needed it and didn't know what they were going to yeah. do or anything like that. In fact, one in the sixth or seventh episode, he said to Tyler. You know, if you find all that gold everybody thinks is buried in John's yard, you better not tell me. Because I'll tell everybody. Because I'm going to tell everybody about it. And then Tyler asked him to turn off the microphone. And And then you find out things that that are, some of the things are hard to hear. But I thought that overall it was well written and it was well crafted. Um, What I liked about it too is that... Brian Reed didn't feel the need to explain himself when it didn't turn out to be. Yeah, originally, John yeah. contacted he didn't say, oh, him. Sorry, it didn't no, well, originally, when John contacted him, it's because John wanted him to find out all the shit going on in shit town and that the son of a wealthy, uh, prominent local family K-K-K had killed. KKK Lumber. KKK Lumber. <laughs> ha ha. Had killed another kid and gotten away with it. And that's what Brian started looking into. And it became apparent, I think, in the second episode that didn't happen. But he didn't feel... And this one of the issues I had with missing Richard Simmons is I felt the the guy doing it felt this need to rationalize and over-explain why he was doing it. And my feeling is, it's an interesting story. Don't feel you have to keep explaining or or over-thinking what you're doing. And one thing I like about this is Brian Reed never said, I'm doing this because, or this changes what where this podcast was going, or blah, blah, blah. He just did it, and he used the the whole thing about the antique clocks to kind of frame as a metaphor metaphor. that worked really well, and sundials... Because because the the clocks, no, I can't remember. And what well, I, it's like what's a life? It's time, it, time passing by, yeah. and what happens as time passes, and what does anyone's life really mean? And it can be kind of depressing, depressing. when you think about I just it. About. But I have a feeling, and not having listened to or read anybody's reaction to this at all, literally have not. I have a feeling that there are people who are dissatisfied or unhappy or feel that it didn't deliver because it was done that maybe think bait and switch or something. right it was done by the same production team that did serial so i think but to me one of the great thing about podcasts is it's seven episodes it can just be what it is it is what it is if you don't like it right and it's a really good what what are you gonna do about it you didn't pay for it I think it is true (laughs) but i think no if you appreciate a good story a good character study what makes people and tick. it's beautifully done. Uh, and I wanted to talk about... See how about, I said what makes people tick. Yeah, and, and ha, ha, yeah, I get it. I never knew that sundials had those sayings on them. I know, I thought that was very... And that they're all kind of cynical and depressing. And very depressing. No, what I wanted to say about John D... John B. B. Oh, that's John right. Brooks. Brooks, that's right. And his last name was Mick... Macklemore. Macklemore. He's a fascinating person. I think he was frustrated with living in the town, but he loved the town. I don't want to get, well, 
we, I don't want to give away too much. Yeah, but we did say we we're going to have spoilers. But I think he had not only, I think he, he did, probably suffered from depression. Suffered from, Definitely. Uh, he was he was repressed as a homosexual. He couldn't really live his life. And I think that that, that comes out when they're talking to that I think he was desperately lonely. Yeah, he was desperately lonely. But he also didn't know how to connect to people correctly. And he had, I think he had very low self-esteem. I think his self-esteem was so low he felt that he had to do things to, he had to manipulate people to make them stay with him when he really didn't. And I think Tyler really cared for him. And one of the sad things is, once he, here's the big spoiler, big spoiler, turn it off, but once he kills himself, and you find this out fairly early that he kills himself, I think episode, the end of episode two or three. He does say someone ends up dead, and I assumed it was But he, how many people really cared about him, and I think... They made it obvious that they to him that they cared about him, he but I think he was it. unable. He couldn't when accept de- when you're, de- but when you're clinically depressed too, you don't believe it. No, and I also think when you have low self esteem or just feel like a square peg all the time, you don't. He had believe a lot it. of things. It, he, there was a lot of things I think in his life that were going against him, and I also think that he had some physical issues. Yes. Um, due to chemical exposure. Mercury poisoning. Mercury, I think he did. And you know what's funny? It reminded me of a friend of mine in high school, her her mom's boyfriend, and I think he did die. He claimed somebody poisoned him with mercury, and he had lot. He did lose a ton of weight. And there was, was one crazy. in oh now now I'm thinking there was one in New Hampshire, too. and I don't know Shit. if he actually if he lied and told us he was poisoned with mercury, but he was her mother had this boyfriend who used to give us okay we're teenage girls he, he this man was I think he was younger than her mom but her mom she had a young mother anyway he used to give do you want to name us, names no he used to give us I can name his name his name was Bud. He used to give us pot and stuff. I don't know why. I mean, I do because he's a sleazebag, but he never tried anything that I know of. But he told us that somebody had put mercury in something, his food or something, and he was dying of it. And I think he did end up dying. I'm going to have to ask her. And and this is what I was remembering. And he did lose a lot of weight and was skinny. This is what I was remembering. There are so many things. I mean, New Hampshire's a small state, but I worked for a newspaper there for 25 years. So there are so many things. And and I just, when you said that, I remembered <laughs> there was something in New Hampshire about mercury poisoning. I look it up. This woman, Karen Wetterhan, was a professor of chemistry at Dartmouth College. Ah. And she specialized in toxic metal exposure. She died of mercury poisoning at the age of 48 ah. due to accidental, accidental exposure to the organic mercury compound, dimeth, dimethyl mercury. <laughs> Protective gloves in use at the time of the incident provided insufficient protection. Oh. And exposure to only a few cops. Oh, my God. And I remember when she died, and it was in... um, Horrible. She was studying the way mercury ions interact with DNA, and she was investigating the toxic properties. Um, She spilled one or two drops from the tip of a pipette onto her latex-gloved hand. Pipette. And not believing herself in any immediate de- danger as she was taking all recommended precautions, she proceeded to clean up the area before removing her oh, protective no. clothing. Tests revealed later that it can, in fact, rapidly permeate different kinds of latex gloves no. onto the skin. It was later confirmed by hair testing, and she died three months after she began oh, having symptoms, God. and she began to get slurred speech, loss of balance. Five months after, 
Aggressive. And then she had aggressive therapy, chelation therapy. Chelation. And then she laughs into what appeared to be a vegetative state. Oh, my punctuated God. by periods of extreme agitation. One of her former students, and this is all from Wikipedia, but I do remember this. Oh, dear. Her husband saw tears rolling down her face. I asked if she was in pain. The doctor said it didn't appear that her brain could even register pain. Uh, she was yeah, removed doctor, from life. Thanks. Yeah, as she's in her body <laughs> screaming, I, I can, I can, but since she couldn't talk. But she was removed from light support and oh died on June 8, 1997, less than a year after her initial exposure. Oh, my God. And what, God, what John did, thing. what John did <coughs> that we find out in the last episode is he used to do this thing where you melt gold into mercury. Mercury, and then you burn the mercury <coughs> off. And you, and you burn the mercury so off and paint clock. So he was constantly inhaling it, and he was doing it in his shop. And I'm sure, and like as it's an expert, Brian Reed quoted, said, you'd have to prove he didn't have it more than he that he had it. Yeah. if he had been inhaling it for those... Since teen, so for thirty years he had been doing yeah. that, um, quite a few times a year. Yeah. So I think he liked to flirt with danger. I think he as did. A lot of depressive people do. And then you know it's funny he, the way he killed himself was a horrible. He t- he it was probably cyanide. one of the most horrible. Just like Jonestown, yeah, though. Yeah, cyanide. But he, he and he was on the phone. To, now and why he called you? up that woman Faye, the town clerk, and that did it while weird. he was on the phone to her. I think because he wanted a final connection, and he didn't want to be alone. And I he think. didn't want and to be she alone. She didn't take offense. See, I would have been like, "Oh, no, she fucker. seemed to, you. you why are you calling me up to yeah. put me but through?" But she this? seemed to. So anyway. Was, I, there were so many things I'm going gonna on. I'm going to listen. I know there's a couple other podcasts that are talking about it that I haven't... Our buddies, you mean? Our, our friends, Crime Writers On, that I haven't listened to. I listened to, to them after. I listened to... I listened the, to them on my trip after. I listened I to the first episode they did where they talked about episode one and one and two. And then I said... And they were trying not to do any spoilers. Or anything, but then I said to myself, you know, I have to listen to shit town before I can go back and listen yeah, to them. Yeah, and you'll appreciate it. They all and, liked it. And I, it made me feel happy about podcasts that you can it doesn't have to it's, be and i hate to be cliche it's it can be like an art form to me that was a literary it was a book version yes. of a podcast it wasn't like our shitty uh what ours would be like i don't know like a crappy magazine maybe yeah. version of a podcast Our, ours would be like remember ours would be like ann lander grit magazine or <laughs> weekly highlights. world news <laughs> weekly wor- no, with the alien. highlights was 2p p g um, um no i was thinking of like, like and no i was thinking of one of those shoppers you get in the mail that but we don't have a bunch of ads i actually like so i read them no, I, the century. I read the century all the time i get it every week i i think we're better than the century which is a weekly newspaper in you South You mean our Portland. podcast? Yeah. <laughs> don't you think we're better than I don't know. I like the century. Uh, but anyways, I digress. But I don't know what our equivalent would be, but we're totally different than that. But that one, That I mean, was like, it's funny that you do this comparison. This has nothing to do with this. But in my, <laughs> the book, the, not, the book I'm writing now, so, uh, the protagonist. What's the title? I think it's Bad News Travels Fast, because all my books have news, yeah. and the Bernie O'Day series have news. But she, I don't want to give too much away for the one or two people out there that may have read my other ones, but in a in a break from her police chief boyfriend, <gasps> she had an affair with Sandy the fire chief. A very short one, Sandy. because then they and got back together. Because I told you to get them together. It was kind of, you got me thinking about it. I like it. Sandy. Yeah. Well, and she compares it to her friend who's trying to figure out what the hell was going on. That, yeah, you know, with Pete, it's like you read a Shakespeare, she's talking about sex, okay? 
you're it's not don't get that look on your face it sounds it's gonna sound better in the book she, it's like the shakespeare sound where you read it and it's very intense and you read it several times and it's like wow that was an very intense experience blah blah, blah. and then but sometimes you just want to read the jabberwocky mm-hmm. you know Although I don't think I'd want to have sex like the Jagger, Jagger, Jabberwocky. This is a metaphor. Okay. I know it is. I know. I know. I'm and maybe I need to work on it a little more. It was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, but you just read it and it's I fun know. and the wordplay and you're enjoying yes, yourself fun, and blah, yes. blah, blah. Like, and they're like two totally different like things. Like I used to like reading The Cat in the Hat to Hannah. Right. It's, I love you bringing up your six-year-old when we're talking about sex. That that's gross. I know it is. Do it that way. It is. But okay. maybe it's time for us to stop for the night. I didn't know did, if I had. Did I have more to talk about? Did you? I don't know. I don't There's even, a lot of things that when you're talk re- listening to Shit Town, you want to talk to people about, like maybe we could talk all night. Like like what? Like they made that that Faye woman seem sketchy. Like, why was she... Say the town clerk? Yeah, like, why did she say she had called people when she hadn't and all that shit? That's Well, there are some things you just don't know the answers yeah, to. I know. But I don't like that. I know. That's what makes it not like a real book, because in a real book that would... You have to tie up the loose ends. Yeah. But no, I thought it was it was good, and I, and I hadn't looked at the pictures online, so I just looked at them on. They show the maze, and the, they show... Oh, I have to look the at the pictures, tattoos. too. And he... He's not a bad-looking guy. He said he wasn't good-looking, but he's not bad-looking. Well, there's that one guy he oh, the, he became Olin. friends with, Olin, who had that one moment where he just wanted to... Rip his clothes off. Lick him all over, yeah. kiss him, or whatever he wanted to do. I know. I really... I think I liked it more than I would have liked it if it had been a true crime podcast. Oh, yeah. As much as I like true crime... It was well done. All the time. Done. Yeah. But I just felt it was... A nice, fresh look at something that made you think about stuff. Yeah. So, we're going to be back next week. And maybe we'll have Ask a Lawyer? I don't know. I don't see us getting together with Matt before next week. Okay. Do you? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I, so, can't, I, have, I do not see... And next week, you're going to do something. What do you have that look on your face? Like, Ooh, I'm trying to think do? of what I'm going to have time to do one uh, next week. But yes, I will. And so if you want to email us and complain about something that we said, <laughs> yeah. uh, crime, we, and we stuff, can that. Um, uh, crime and stuff at gmail.com. That's our Gmail address. Crime and stuff. At and our gmail. website's crime and stuff online, Top where top. there's also a contact form. And also you can subscribe by to iTunes, yes. Android. You can listen to it on an RSS and feed. However you're doing it, especially iTunes, can you subscribe, rate, and review? You can rate and review us. Even if you want to give us a shitty, I don't care. Just yeah, something. Give us, throw us a bone. Yeah. And you can also donate on Patreon. Yeah, on our, if you go on our website, there's there are a two recurring ways to donation. And you can PayPal's get, a one-time donation. And you can get some cool stuff. Yes. And you can... What else? I think that's it. And we will... I don't think Matt's going to be back next week, but maybe the week after. If Matt's too tied up... I think Maureen is too tied up. Ooh. No, I've got, like, four jobs, and Crime Wave is next weekend. Oh, Crime Wave. And I oh, we don't... There is not one... Oh, no, because this won't be Because when this comes out, Crime Wave will be over. Uh, you guys missed it. You uh, missed it, and it was awesome, was even great. though it hasn't happened yet. The problem is I don't think there's any break in my schedule. I see. 
And that's, you know, yeah. I'm not complaining. It's nice to have several jobs. <laughs> like, that make shitty like, and I, I do have to write that book, too. Yes, you need to write your book. Okay. okay. So maybe I'll stop and we'll go do that. Okay, bye. See you next week. Sorry, just a minute. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know you hate that.